I think Flanders was based on Dave Smith. This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A., Bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jammer. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code JavaScriptJabber, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 175 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have Jameson Dance. Hello, friends. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Amy Knight. Hello. Dave Smith. Hey, everyone. Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week we have two special guests. We have Evan Chaplicki. Hello. And Richard Feldman. How's it going? Do you want to introduce yourselves? Sure. So I... uh designed and developed this programming language called Elm. Uh, and I use it at work <laughs> and on side projects and, and examples and pretty much every chance I get. Very cool. Do you want to kind of give us a quick introduction to what Elm is for those who haven't gone and played with it yet? So it sort of came from a feeling of I wanted to do front-end stuff, but I wanted it to feel nice. And so it brings in a lot of lessons from sort of the last 30 years of functional programming stuff to try to make front-end programming really, really pleasant. And the key thing here is not that I'm really about crazy academic stuff, but that there's a lot of cool insights there that I want to bring to the sort of practical front-end work that I want to be able to do. So that's the high-level version. So you said it's not about crazy academic stuff, but it did come out of some of your PhD work. Is that correct? It actually was my undergraduate thesis. Oh, your so, undergraduate thesis. Yeah. So it actually was, I was going to work on this project no matter what. And if I worked on it as part of my thesis, I'd get to work on it a, a whole lot more and with much better guidance. So it sort of dovetailed together in a, in a nice way. And so that actually meant that sort of the foundations of Elm are a lot firmer than they would have been if it had just been a project that I was passionate about. My undergrad thesis was like, how do I pass this class that I need to graduate? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm impressed by people that do real work. 
Yeah, it was super fun. That was like my fourth year was, you know, I worked on this project a hell of a lot. <laughs> so I want to kind of dig into this a little bit. What are some of these sort of academic ideas and how are they actually then applicable? Because when we hear academic ideas, usually it sounds like, oh, okay, so something that people kind of noodle over but never really use. Yeah, so I think there's a communication problem between sort of these different communities where like really awesome ideas have come out of there and then no one's able to like talk about them in a clear way. So like for me, it's all about how can I not have runtime errors anymore? Or when I debug, how can I sort of go back in time or, or, or essentially like how can I make my experience as a developer nicer? And if you look through some of this research, there's some really cool stuff. And there's just this issue where there's a whole community that is sort of unable to communicate when they've done something cool. So, so, so <laughs> we're trying. It's a really good way to describe it. <laughs> so we're trying to sort of find the the cool stuff and actually make it so it's fun and easy to use, so, so that we can make uh, cool front end stuff. I just wanted to kind of like try to get a baseline before we went too far. So coming from the perspective of someone who has not been writing code all that long, my question is really why you think functional programming is good for the front end. But in answering that question, if you could kind of go over how you define functional programming and then how you would define functional reactive programming. Because I feel like, especially the reactive part, that word's kind of thrown around a lot. But what does it really mean? Is it so, first of all, I don't know your background. Are you someone who's uh, just getting into programming or? Yes, I've been doing this for maybe two-ish years. So Awesome. Well, congratulations. I, <laughs> I actually, so I worked with a mentor on, uh, he actually kind of walked me through his Elm project last week. You know, we were able to talk about this stuff, but I know a lot of people listen and they may be fuzzy on those lines because a lot of people who listen are new. So, yeah. you know, just, just to take a few minutes and go over that before we go into deep stuff. Sure. So my experience with why functional programming is a good fit for the front end, and I, I think it applies to the back end too. I wouldn't say it's you know particular to the front end, but really the nice thing about it is just that it gets rid of certain you know types of problems that I've run into a lot over the years, in particular around what happens when you start making code bases bigger and bigger. So I've noticed that in a lot of cases, when you're writing something functionally, it maybe takes a little bit of uh, getting used to. There's sort of a familiarity gap because a lot of, you know, historically what's been done and like what's out there and what's on Stack Overflow is done in an imperative style. But once you actually get used to writing something in a functional style, you realize that it's not actually like significantly different. It's just that you didn't know how to write it in that way in the first place, if that makes sense. What makes Elm in particular really good about as a functional programming language is just that it's sort of builds around the assumption that you're writing in this functional style. And you asked, um, you know, how would I define functional programming? To me, it's all about using functions that don't have side effects. So stateless functions. In other words, functions where when you call them, all they do is they look at what they're given and then they return a value and that's it. And they don't have any side effects and they don't, you know, go query the world for anything. They just take what they're given and then return a value. So if you give them the same values, they return the same, you know, result every time, no matter what, and do nothing else. And to sort of zoom out on that point, the reason why that's useful is uh, it, it means you can think about your code base in a local way. So if I make a change in one piece of my code, I can know that it's not going to mess something up 
three files away or 10 directories down or something my coworker was working on a month ago. So you get this kind of modularity of adding code that's really kind of crazy. Well, what's interesting is that it's nice, but I wouldn't go as far as to call it crazy when you're just <laughs> doing it in that style. So I got sort of introduced to these concepts a couple of years ago, and I started using that style when I was writing JavaScript and CoffeeScript, um, just trying to write as many stateless functions as possible and then sort of confine my you know mutations and updates you know to, to sort of the minimal part of my programs I could. And I found that that was very helpful. It made my code bases easier to scale. It made things easier to debug. It was just nice. But it wasn't crazy awesome. What's crazy awesome <laughs> is when you have a language like Elm where that's the only game in town. All of your functions are guaranteed to be stateless. Because at that point, when you look at a function and you're like, what is this thing doing? You know, I have this bug. Is it, is it like which part of the code base could be responsible for this bug? You can narrow that down just crazy fast because you're like, oh, well, the only things that these functions could possibly do is call one another and use what they, you know, each function returns. So I don't have to worry that this chunk of the code base is mod affecting this other chunk of the code base because it's literally not capable of affecting it. That's really awesome. And immutability as well, correct? Yeah, so immutability is sort of baked into Elm, which gives you this sort of separation of concerns where it's not possible for one piece of your code to sort of reach into another piece and mess with it. Yeah, and those two go hand in hand, right? I mean, it's it's a lot harder to write uh, stateless functions all the time if you have mutation because it's pretty easy to accidentally mutate something and then take turn a stateless function do something that's no longer stateless. So mutability actually gives you uh, you know an easier time of doing that. So I actually wrote a uh, a library for that, that we use at work um, called Seamless Immutable that uh, essentially makes it easier to use immutable objects and arrays in normal JavaScript code. That these are just you can just pass them around to any normal JavaScript function, and uh, they'll just work as long as that JavaScript function doesn't try to mutate them, of course, because <laughs> it won't work. But yeah, so, and to go to the point of like, what is functional programming? What is functional reactive programming? I think every person you ask is going to answer those questions differently. So I'm not going to say that I have a canonical answer. But for functional programming, I'd say it's sort of, there's a sort of constellation of language features that are helpful. Um, and so that's stuff like, immutability, doing things primarily through functions. So like if you need to configure how a certain part of your application works, instead of passing in some data, maybe you'll pass in a function. So that kind of stuff. And then depending on who you talk to, they might be more or less into types as a fundamental feature of functional programming. I don't that, buy it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't buy it. Yeah. Not... So, and then functional reactive programming, again, you have a People have many opinions on what is the what is the true functional reactive. What is the way I think of it in Elm is essentially we have a way of running events through our program that lets us still use stateless functions and immutability and get all these nice benefits that Richard was talking about. So it's essentially how do you handle events in this environment where you're coding in a very particular way. An interesting sort of meta comment on that is that I've heard a lot of discussions recently about sort of what is reactive, what is FRP, you know, what is functional programming. And something that I've noticed is that, you know, th there seems to be, in my opinion, and this, this might be controversial, but I think there's a lot of smoke, but not as much fire there. I don't know that those are necessarily the most important questions to be asking. Same thing with, uh, you know, type checked versus not type checked. Like if I look back at, you know, the history of languages I've used and I rank them from, you know, my favorite to use to my least favorite, 
like there's a mix of all those different things. There's a mix of functional and imperative. There's a mix of typed and untyped and they're not, you know, sorted like all of the, you know, one type is, is above the other. I think it just has to do with what is the, the collection of things that makes up the experience of using a language or using a library or using a framework. And I think that you have to evaluate on a case by case basis. And it's really about, you know, is this thing sort of, you know, more than the sum of its parts or contributes to experiences that are more than the sum of their parts. And for me, that's definitely the case with Elm. And it's been the case with other technologies I've used in the past. But I don't know if I could generalize and say that, you know, just because I like Elm and Elm uses a, you know, functional, you know, very hardcore, you know, strict type system and, you know, stateless functions and immutability everywhere, that I would like another language that did the same thing. I think what makes me like Elm is the way that those ideas are put together in a really clean way. There were another language that had those same, you know, characteristics, the same buzzwords, but they weren't put together as well as they are in Elm. I could see not liking that language. So you're saying that you hate Haskell. <laughs> That's what I got from that. Uh, <laughs> I, I was very careful not to say that. <laughs> But I think that that's a really good point. And, and the thing I think about when I'm sort of making design decisions is like my goal is for, for people to be using the language for them to achieve their goals like quickly and to have a good time doing it and to like not regret <laughs> that they did it a year down the line. Like I, I know I, I have some JavaScript code bases where we're like, yeah, it works. And then a couple months later, we're like, ah. <laughs> so it, it's really about having a clear sense of what the language is for and then achieving those goals really well. So like if we're not in competition with JavaScript or TypeScript or et cetera, in terms of making front end stuff, then we're doing it wrong. And sort of whether it's functional or typed, I think those are sort of incidental. It's about what's the best experience of achieving your goals and like having a good time while doing that. I just think too, from more of a beginner person's perspective, it actually seems like a very approachable you know, entry into functional programming. So whereas some of these other languages don't seem horribly approachable, this definitely seemed extremely approachable. That's awesome to hear. That's like, <laughs> that's like a huge goal of ours to make it so folks can get started easily and feel like, oh, like, <laughs> this makes sense. Like, I can use this. Yeah, yes. and I've actually been on the other side of, you know, uh, your experience, Amy, which is to say that, um, so we have a couple of coworkers at work, or I have a couple of coworkers at work who went through a coding boot camp. And actually, they have less experience than you do. That You know, that in one case, it's just like literally straight out of, you know, this is their first programming job after a boot camp. And it's been really interesting, you know, teaching them Elm as, you know, because we use it at work, so I can't be the only person maintaining that code. So I've been pairing with people and teaching them how to use Elm. And it's been just very illuminating, you know, the experience of teaching people how to use Elm versus sort of teaching functional programming using other languages, which I've tried to do in the past. With Elm, it's just kind of like, this looks a lot like our other code, except that, you know, there are a few sort of tips and tricks that you need to, you know, learn to, you know, it's like, oh, you don't do this in quite this way, you do it in a slightly different way. And then beyond that, it's just that a lot of the conversations we have tend to go like this, where they'll say, okay, we need to worry about, oh, no, we don't need to worry about that, because that can't happen here, right? <laughs> that, that, that's ex yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I almost think, um, you know, so some people would think that maybe functional programming sounds a little bit scary, but I almost think like some of the concepts around it will keep you from making mistakes. And as a beginner, that's really valuable. 
So yeah, I, wanna... I mean, it's also valuable as an expert, honestly. <laughs> I mean, you know, like we're humans, we make a lot of mistakes and like having a language that just sort of helps you with that is just fantastic. I don't have enough hubris to say that I'm such a great programmer that I can just, you know, jam out code and it's always going to work. And especially that it's still going to work six months from now after, you know, we've been banging on it and making changes. But yeah, that just knowing that the language sort of has my back is just a very good feeling that, you know, doesn't seem to go away with experience. So we've talked a little bit about this on the edges, but I want to talk a little more explicitly about it. It's kind of this idea of constraints mm. and how they can be helpful. Um, I think if you're a, a person who's done a lot of JavaScript UIs and hasn't done a lot of functional programming, coming into Elm, it can feel very constricting. There's a lot of things you can't do that you just want to do. And and it can be counterintuitive to when you hear people tell you that that's better. Like, no, it's, it's good that you can't pass in <laughs> an object or a string to this function. You're better off that way. Can you talk maybe about that idea and how it's helpful in the long run, or if it is? So my friend Farouk Atesh, who created Modernizer, he did this great presentation called The Beauty of Constraints. And he's talking about it in sort of um, the design context, like in, in sort of how to make you know good user experiences and how constraints can allow you, sort of empower you to make something better than if you'd, you know, given yourself the full range of options. And I've sort of found the same thing in, you know, working with the constraints of Elm and, you know, with uh, the constraints of trying to use stateless functions in general, which is that basically the experience I've had is that there's sort of this curve. You know, the first part of the curve is sort of like, it's the unfamiliarity part where you're like, wait, I want to do this thing. And I reached for the familiar tool and the familiar tool is not there anymore. How can I possibly do what I wanted to do? And then in some cases, you think about it. In some cases, you Google it, whatever. The point is you eventually get to a different place. You, you realize, okay, I can still accomplish what I want to accomplish. I just do it in a different way than I was doing it before. And so by the end of it, you end up achieving the same result that you wanted to achieve before. And I definitely have yet to encounter a problem you know, that I could not solve with functional programming or with Elm that I couldn't have solved with just you know plain vanilla JavaScript. But the difference is that by the end of it, these constraints, the fact that you were applying them consistently throughout mean that you can go back and look at your code and it's easier to modify because you say, okay, if I make this change, will it break these other things? Or, you know, does this thing have a dependency on this other thing? Your dependencies are much clearer and your invariants are, you know, sort of give you the ability to make changes with confidence. One way to look at it as constraints, but another way to look at it is as guarantees, right? Like when you write this function, you have a 100% guarantee that some other function in your code base can't break it. And I think those are sort of two sides of the same thing here. So I want to flesh out what Asher was saying from sort of like the way I think about languages. So so when I think of constraining a language, so when you want to write a program, there's sort of an infinite number of ways you could write that program. And the constraints are essentially giving you a smaller infinity. And hopefully that smaller infinity is also like a good subset. So if you can get it just right, the common path through the language will also be great code. So another thing that's interesting about constraints is when you have sort of rules or about how the code works, the, the more structure there is to those rules, the better you can do sort of large analysis of the code. So when you access a field that doesn't exist in Elm, we're actually able to find that immediately and say, hey, the value you're passing through doesn't have that field and just let you know immediately. And that's sort of because of the sort of structured nature of the language. And and part of the reason why some JavaScript tooling isn't at the same level of Java or some other language is because having these rules, having the structure uh, really helps you 
do meta-analysis. So essentially, like the computer can help you code more if the rules for the are, are simpler. Do you uh, have that same feeling about like JavaScript and TypeScript? What do you mean? Well, types are con- a form of constraints, right? Mm-hmm. JavaScript is extremely popular, and many of those who program in JavaScript, when they hear about types and strictly ty- strictly typed languages, whether they're experienced with them or not, often sort of poo-poo the idea. And we see, we have TypeScript for JavaScript, and those who mostly adopted, I think, are those who came from a strictly typed gra- background. I miss it. So I'm going to make three statements, all of which are true. One, uh, <laughs> Elm is way way stricter than TypeScript as, as a type checker. Two. I have never used TypeScript. Three, I have no interest in TypeScript, even though I prefer Elm to JavaScript. And so that kind of gets back to my earlier point about, you know, I don't know that there's necessarily a, you know, a a big correlation, at least in my experience, between whether a language is type checked or not versus how nice it is to use. But the point is that what TypeScript essentially does, at least from reading up about it, is that it lets you add type annotations and then the compiler will check those for you. But that's not really, you know, uh, the type of guarantee that Elm provides. Like the what Elm's compilation does is it will tell you if you made a mistake anywhere. TypeScript will only tell you if you made a mistake where you told it about the types. And if you forget to annotate a type somewhere, you're still on your own. So I don't have this guarantee of like all of my functions are calling each other properly. It was, I think, over a year before I got my first accidental Elm runtime exception and literally, I'm not making this up. It was from something that's going to be like caught at the, by the compiler in the next release. <laughs> so it wouldn't have even happened. I would still have an un, undefeated, unbroken, never got a runtime. Like not even just never got undefined as not a function, but never even got a runtime exception except for so, that. And so it sounds like you're saying anytime there's a problem with my program, it's always the author of Elm's fault. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. is exactly what yeah. I'm saying. I, I like this language. Yeah. No, it's and, so, and, and that, you're joking, but like that's actually sort of how I think about sort of this design process. Is like if people are ha- running into issues, you know, one way to handle it is just be like, "Oh, programming is hard. Do better." And I think a lot of different libraries and languages sort of have that, and and I prefer to take that as a critique of my work so far and uh, and ideas of how to do better. All right. So a- as an example of this, we have a error message catalog of sort of Whenever you get an error message that's like, hey, you tried to use this field, but it doesn't exist, people can uh, submit, hey, I got this this report, but I don't exactly know what it's talking about. And so we are trying to collect all those and sort of improve uh, as much as possible so that whenever you get an error message, it doesn't feel like an error message anymore. It feels like a hint. It feels like you have an assistant who's saying like, hey, I found an issue here. Here are the relevant docs. Here's a suggestion of how to fix it. So we really want the experience to be really pleasant. And I do take it really seriously when people are confused. Like, I, I think that that's something I can make better. And to finish up on the, the TypeScript question, one thing that is interesting to me is that, you know, especially because I sort of, my career has been back and forth between, you know, dynamic languages and type check languages. And I remember that one of the things when I first switched from type check to dynamic was thinking that, man, this is so much more concise. Like, I don't have to write out all these crazy type annotations all over the place. And when I heard about TypeScript, I was like, oh, great, I'm going to go back to that. You know, I'm just going to, like, add a type annotation to everything if I want it to, you know, be more type checked. And at that point, it's kind of like I'm just writing, you know, sort of quick unit tests, right? I'm saying, like, 
okay, this needs to be this type and this needs to be that type. And yeah, like the compiler can check it a little bit faster. It's a little bit better than unit test in some ways. And, you know, obviously it can't do as much as a unit test can. But the point is in Elm, like you just don't have to do that. You actually can write out an Elm program that you don't have a single type annotation in it anywhere. And because Elm has type inference, the compiler will just still check it and will still verify that you didn't make any mistakes. You know, you didn't try to pass the wrong type of thing to the wrong type of other thing. So you can have code that is strictly more concise than TypeScript. In fact, more concise than JavaScript because Elm's syntax is just generally more concise than JavaScript's. And yet, you know, gives you a stronger set of guarantees because if there are any, you know, mismatches anywhere in there, the compiler will tell you about them right away. Another thing I don't know about TypeScript that I do know about Elm uh, is that another thing that that has sort of you know been a, a big influence over the UX of using different languages for me is compilation times. Mm-hmm. So I remember definitely using some languages where it just took so long to compile the files that I just wish that it weren't doing that. You know, even <laughs> if it did give me a, a nice message, like when I made a mistake, it would, just wasn't worth it because it slowed down development so so much. Elm's yeah. compiler is just lightning fast though like when i was pairing with one of my coworkers, we went through like we made some big change like across several files you know changed a bunch of stuff and we just kind of like worked through the compiler errors and then switched over to the browser and refreshed the page to you know to check that it actually still worked like once we got through all the compiler errors and not only did it work but we we were both immediately struck by how much slower it was to switch over and refresh the browser <laughs> and wait for the page to load even though it loads in under a second than it had been to just compile, you know, each time, like recompile and just look at the errors. Like it's actually a faster, I mean, that that's just sort of like a new experience for me is that usually I'm used to it being sort of an upfront cost, you know, having a, a compiler that type checks. But in Elm, like compared to the browser, it's actually an upfront time savings. Like the alternative would have been that we would have brought it up in the browser and gotten a runtime exception and then gone back and fixed our code. But instead, we were able to just get these lightning fast, you know, responses from the compiler and just fix them right away before we even open the browser. Another question you might want to ask from sort of like a more languagey design side is what is your type system for? Right. So I think in TypeScript, it's more we want to lower the burden of unit testing to some amount. Maybe we can offload that or um, maybe it'll be easier to refactor a bit. And in Elm, those are goals, of course, but we, we also sort of the way that a system is designed in Elm, you can think of it as when you need to test that every code path in your program, uh, that things go well, that's actually quite hard to do to get 100% code coverage. So what Elm's type system is able to say is, given how data can possibly flow through this program, through these functions, through these other functions, we'll never get to a case where something is used in an unexpected way. So that means we'll never get to a point where I call a method on a number. And it's able to essentially give you 100% code coverage, guaranteeing that I'm never going to use this data in an unexpected way that causes a runtime error. And I think that not every type system has that as an explicit goal. Does that make sense? I think it does, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of the the ideas around how Elm uses signals to flow values through your program? I guess we haven't talked explicitly about, about signals, but it's a big part of the experience of using Elm and how you can write pure functions that still deal with interaction. Because, I mean, everything's so, easy if all your data is in memory and you're writing it back to memory, right? But, like, that doesn't happen in the real world. You need to interact. 
because uh so from my perspective signals don't feel like a big part of the elm experience um oh, really? yeah there are a lot of examples online so the way i got into elm honestly was like i i had a side project and i was like i want to kind of you know rewrite this in a better language because it had gotten kind of unmaintainable. And I decided to use Elm. And the way I got started was I literally just ripped off the to-do MVC example and then just kind of like rewrote the logic bits and just kept expanding it until I had my app working. So I never actually learned how Signals worked in Elm until like way like months after I'd had this like side project running in production. (laughs) And I, I think that's like, not only is that possible, but I would personally recommend it. Like if you can just you know, start building stuff in Elm before learning about sort of the underlying concepts that make everything work. As long as you're okay with hand-waving that away and saying like, okay, this is a thing. It's like different from what I'm used to. But if, you know, like this allows the language to have these cool characteristics and here's, you know, some stuff I can just copy paste in. I think that's a perfectly legitimate way to get in. Like I don't necessarily feel the need to understand, you know, like what my compiled bytecode looks like on the server, you know, I don't feel like you need to know everything about the language on day one to get a lot out of it. Having said that, Evan can definitely explain how signals work. (laughs) So part of sort of the, the like guiding philosophy with Elm is that we want to sort of gradually introduce concepts as they become necessary or interesting to users. So we actually have this package called Startup that's able to just start a normal web app that does HTML stuff um, without thinking about signals at all. You sort of say, here's my model, here's how I update my model, and here's how I view my model. And sort of the machinery of hooking that up to events in the right way is taken care of sort of by the package itself. So, so essentially, it lets you put off learning about signals for a little bit longer. And the nice thing about Startup real quick is that it's not doing anything like terribly fancy. It's mm. just like getting rid of some sort of like boilerplate that you tend to want to do a lot. But like, if you decide at some point you're like, okay, startup, you know, got me this far, but now I want to do something crazier and more complicated. Like switching from startup to that would be very minimal because yeah. you're, you're already sort of like startup is just like, if you're going to use best practices here, I'll take care of some work for you. But like you're already using the best practices, so you would just throw out start app and replace it with uh, your typical sort of boilerplate that we used to write before start app, and then uh, then modify it from there as you desire. But yeah, so the learning curve these days is really more like what is the Elm architecture? So like, how do I set up a web app such that I can have sort of independent components that are modular and I can share them around? I can test them and sort of getting used to syntax and, and sort of getting into like using map instead of for in some cases. Um, sort of, so, so that's sort of really the first step. And I think you can, I've, I've seen people get extraordinarily far without having to get into signal stuff too much. And I think Richard and I might actually be on the more the end of the spectrum where we say like signals aren't that important, which is also weird considering like that's what my like whole thesis was about. But in the pursuit of like that nice learning curve where you're just getting productive really quickly and feeling great, I I don't think it's really crucial uh, with like modern Elm code. Maybe that just reflects my learning style. I feel like I I get antsy if there's some abstraction that I know is happening and I don't understand it very well. That's why monads nerds night me in Haskell. I like try and do a thing and they're like, you don't have to understand monads. Just type this code in. And I just Google monads for like five days and then I, I stop using Haskell. I'm the same way. I can't stand that. <laughs> I would hope that that is an unfair comparison. I, I yeah, yeah. I know I know monad is like a trigger word to you. Sorry. So, well but so yeah so I, I struggled with that concept for 
I don't know, I'd say like six months or something. I and, still don't understand volume. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I, I was coming, when I was struggling with it, I was coming from a background of like, I'd done functional programming in various realms for like three-ish years by then. It's just hard. Um, whereas Signals is more sort of the key thing that was exciting about Element in the early days is like, holy crap, we can get this interactivity with a relatively simple concept. And, and so the idea was... I was making just a UI lab. Essentially, I was like, I, I really dislike that I can't vertically and horizontally center this picture. Like that, that bothers me. So I was just making a UI library to make that easy. And I got to a point where I was like, I had Yogi and he was centered and I was like, Oh, this is cool. And I wanted to interact with him. And I realized, you know, Oh crap. Like how do I make this change, but keep immutability? Um, and so I had this realization of like, what if we had values that changed over time? So what if the dimensions of the page just like changed as they, and that sort of flowed through your program in the right way. So you can kind of think of a signal as a value that is changing itself as the world moves. And so all of that sort of propagates through your program and you don't have to worry about that. So where you would have been writing callbacks or doing some sort of wiring, instead that sort of just like flows through your program in a nice way. To get a little more detail-oriented, the way you can think of signals specifically is I have a value and whenever an event occurs, it might change. So there are discrete points in time where it'll update to a new value. And whenever that happens, it sort of propagates through the system. Is that an okay sort of high-level description of how things are working? Sure, yeah. There's a lot of stuff you can read up about it. I mean, to get into the more, what are the practical implications of that? But I mean, honestly, it's, it's definitely something that is, uh, you know, a topic you can spend a lot of time talking about, but also a topic that you don't need to spend a lot of time talking about. And it's also the the history of this idea is quite contested in that there are a lot of modern, like, reactive things that actually work very differently than Elm. So if you are looking at reactive extensions or Bacon.js, the actual role of reactivity in those systems is very, very different than what it is in Elm. So, so in Elm, it's more on the very borders of our program. We say, hey, I'm getting these messages in. And on the, on the other side, we're saying, okay, and I'm sending these messages out. Whereas in a lot of the JavaScript libraries that are for reactivity, that the wiring and like streams of things sort of goes through all of your code base and what I think is nice in Elm is that our core is just this foundation of functions and mutable values that are really, really easy to think about. Whereas if you start getting crazy with signals and streams, your code, your code kind of gets a bit out of control. And so I've, I've seen this happen with teams that are doing stuff that's like TypeScript plus Bacon.js plus React. And like, if you squint, that's kind of Elm. But if you look at what actually happens in practice, it's so easy to go off the rails and, and end up with some really crazy code. There's a really uh, great photograph that uh, somebody came out with uh, a while back, and it shows this guy who's got like a big camcorder and like a boombox and a typewriter, and he's just surrounded by this sort of pile of stuff. The, the idea is that this is all a bunch of stuff that we used to need, all of these separate, you know, big clunky things for and now we just have an iphone and from my perspective that's what it feels like switching to elm is like javascript is sort of asymptotically approaching elm as far <laughs> as 
reactive, you know, concepts and functional programming. And it's like, well, if you do this in this way and you use this library for this and this library for that, make sure not to use these other things. Even with all that, you still don't have an iPhone. You have a bunch of parts, but they're not more than the sum of their parts. Whereas Elm, you know, because it's designed around these things, sort of is more than the sum of their parts. You know, it's, it's more than the sum of just all of those ideas put together because the language has these sort of internal synergies where it's designed for these things to work really, really well together in ways that they just can't and never can in vanilla JavaScript. And that's sort of what's exciting to me is it's not just about following these new ideas, but it's about, do you have a language that takes these ideas and sort of elevates them into something that's better than what's possible outside? That's a really good point. I've been using uh, a JavaScript library that strongly encourages you to write pure functions, but at the end of the day, there's nothing they can do, right? Like yeah. you can do whatever you want. You can go download Wikipedia in your callback and they can't, <laughs> sure. they can't stop you. But that gets back to the point we were talking about earlier about building these constraints into the language and, and how much more powerful that is. So that's kind of a segue into, and something I wanted to ask about, which is I feel like we're seeing this same thing happening in JavaScript. People are in some ways trying to put Elm into JavaScript. And then I'm, I guess that's probably the wrong way to say it, but looking at the things that Elm does well, and these are obviously not, it's not like this is an invention of Elm. Mm-hmm. Functional reactive programming uh, into JavaScript and the places where we're seeing this most noticeably is in React and Angular 2. So you kind of had this concept, of, uh, this statement about how JavaScript by itself, even if you do things differently, doesn't quite get all the way there. Yeah, and I say this as someone who co-authored a book on React. <laughs> so I'm, you know, potentially costing myself royalty money by, by making that statement, but I believe it. Well, so it, another piece of of this is that, like, I, I was kind of, if you think of the idea of, hey, this unidirectional data flow thing seems pretty cool, or this big chunk of state what do they call it the like the flux thing oh stores yeah the big store of all your information should be in one place so these are actually concepts that show up in my thesis before like react existed in the world i didn't use those terms i used terms that sort of fit the literature and like community that i was working within but so so like when react first came out i was like oh you guys Uh, (laughs) but they might have read your thesis (laughs) <laughs> I don't I don't think so. I think it was sort of a, a co-invention kind of thing. And they, they made some really cool advancements as, as well. And so what was cool when that happened was I sort of had confirmation that like the world is sort of moving in this direction as well. Um, and I think when Richard says the world is like converging on Elm stuff, it's with that sort of historical context in mind where like that pattern of unidirectional flow and uh, a single store for your state that all sort of emerged naturally from Elm. And it wasn't like I invented those concepts. It was just like it happened because we started with these rules and, and, and guarantees. So another piece of this is about guarantees at the language level, right? So like, let's say that a person makes an error at a rate of like 1% per line of code. I don't know if that's a crazy number. And it's not about the person or like what they're doing in particular. It's, I think that percentage is related to the language you're working on. Like at what rate do you introduce issues into your code base? And in JavaScript, without sort of breaking the whole internet, it's hard to reduce that 
rate of introducing errors. And there are a lot of projects that sort of evolve JavaScript in that direction. So like the strong script and I forget, there are two projects out of Google that are sort of moving JavaScript more towards a type system and using the sort of the use strict annotation so that you can have safe code within certain realms. And they're doing that partly for speed. But so there is this general move of like, maybe we can get to something that has nice speed characteristics, has nice maintainability characteristics, but the road to it in JavaScript is is much longer, right? So like, if you think of, like, I still can't use Flexbox in every browser without doing tricks. The road to that is going to be really, really long. Man, I wish we could use Flexbox right now. <laughs> we still support it. That's, that's sad. <laughs> you know, so kind of going back to one of your statements, I mean, I don't know how much... Again, I don't know the history of React per se, but I do know that Angular 2 was heavily inspired by Elm. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't uh, know that either. Yeah, it was very heavily inspired by Elm. Okay, I need to look into that. That's awesome. That's that's really cool. We've we've started to like hear here and there, like that Elm has been a a part of different libraries or frameworks, which is really exciting. So I always have to balance this, like, oh, that's mine. With like, it's actually really cool to see these ideas getting used and, and like making people's lives nicer. So right. I have have to like be mature and, and be like, okay, <laughs> this is good. This is good. <laughs> I, I actually had a funny experience this last week. My wife and I were looking at houses in the parade of homes. I assume there are parade of homes all over the country. If, if not, a parade of homes is a thing where there's a whole bunch of homes that have just been built and you can pay 15 bucks and you can go walk through them all and mm-hmm. see them. And then people who built them are, of course, trying to sell you stuff. Anyway... <laughs> It was very funny. We were looking through this home built by a builder. And my wife and I have been in the building pro- process of building our own house now for two years and still haven't even started digging. But my wife designed our house plan on her own. And oh. she sent that house plan around to several builders. Well, we go to this house that looks oh. very similar to our house by a builder who we had sent our house plans to oh. a, a year ago. So we kind of had that same sort of feeling like, oh, they stole it. And I said, you know, whether they did or they didn't, this sort of like uh, imitation is the best form of flattery, right? And, and yeah. you asked if the builder accepts pull requests? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Oh, nice. uh, so I, I remember when React came out. I mean, I don't know the whole history of React because you have to have worked at Facebook for that. But I remember when it came out, I my, my first thought was, this seems great. This seems like, you know, it dovetails perfectly with sort of the programming and the style of stateless functions thing that I've been having good success with for the past, you know, couple of years. I want to jump on this. And I remember when, at that time, that was... React was considered sort of crazy and experimental, whereas now it's, I think, pretty mainstream. So we adopted it early at work and, you know, had a great experience with it. And then when I started looking into Elm on the side and, and, you know, started using it more, you know, subsequent to that, I remember thinking like, man, this is the way I felt when React came out. Like, this seems like a paradigm shift. Like, this is just like, you know, better in a way that is just, you know, on a different level than, you know, previous upgrades. Like, you know, you look at like previous to React, you had like, okay, there was like, Ember and Angular and Knockout and like Backbone. And like all of these were kind of variations on the MVC theme. And React was the first one that was kind of clearly a paradigm shift. Like this is different. This is not, you know, in the same category as these other things. Maybe it's awesome. Maybe it's not, but it's definitely very different. And I feel the same way about Elm. And hopefully we will also look prescient as early adopters of Elm (laughs) in the same way that we now do uh, for React. So one of the interesting things that, you know, separates those two is that I remember with React, there's a lot of, you know, even it, for as much as React simplifies things, there's still a lot of complexity there. 
So around like components, right? So like if you look at a component and you've got your render function and then the render function looks at state and props, which work differently and have play by slightly different rules. And then you have the whole component lifecycle and these different hooks at different times, depending on when things are mounted and so forth. In Elm, you just have a function called view and it takes a model, like one other argument and then returns your view and that's it. And that's like the whole thing. There's no component. There's no rules around how to define a component. There's no, I mean, React has, for the past, I think, three releases, changed how component definitions work if you don't use JSX. It's, it's just a function. It's just, you know, like, and not only is it just a function, it's a stateless function. It just takes arguments and then, you know, returns a value. And uh, somebody mentioned earlier libraries that recommend, you know, avoiding side effects. They say, don't use side effects here or bad things will happen. But again, in elements, guaranteed. It's a stateless function for sure. And one thing I want to emphasize about that is like from a learning perspective, there's a big difference between sort of having best practices and having tooling that supports a certain style of coding. So I found again and again in my sort of programming experience that if you use Prolog, for example, to take a like a a language that sort of no one gets angry about necessarily, but like (laughs) it teaches you to think in a way that even if you understood the core principles, you wouldn't get it just by doing them in JavaScript or Java or whatever other language. Um, and so I think there's some benefit to, in Elm, you don't even have to say, oh, it's better to use not have side effects here. It's just like, get into the habit of writing code that way. And that's, that's actually something you can translate to JavaScript much more easily. So I, I find that this advice of, oh, use a stateless function, you can internalize it much more if you've been in a realm where it's just the thing you have to do. One of my coworkers had a great term for this, and she said, learning a particular framework is sort of horizontal growth. You get more familiar with that framework, but it doesn't you know, enrich your sort of understanding of, of programming, it sort of give you more techniques that you can use in other places. But learning a different paradigm like functional programming is vertical growth because not only does it teach you how to use this new particular tool, but it also gives you new tools that you can then bring to other projects with different frameworks, different languages, etc. That's definitely been true in my experience. You do still see a lot of parallels between the paradigm in React and the paradigm in Elm. Oh, definitely. I mean, they, yeah, they both sure. use virtual DOM. I mean, it's it's definitely the same underlying you know rendering mechanism that is you know start with uh, a representation of what you want the page to look like. And then under the hood, you'll, you'll sort of delegate the act of actually updating the DOM. So in that way, I mean, yeah, they're, they are, uh, they both do that. And um, we're starting to see libraries out there that sort of bring the ideas from Elm to React in pretty direct ways. So it, you can think of it sort of as by taking away mutation, you're just in a subset. It's, it's So the things that you can do in Elm, you can also do in JavaScript, perhaps you also lose those guarantees, the guarantees of having the, the subset. So you can still do the same kind of stuff. And React is quite close. So in Richard's case, his transition, both with the project he sort of first started on, the side project, and at work was going from jQuery and CoffeeScript to CoffeeScript and React to Elm. Is that yep. right? What's really cool about how Richard did this is he he always is really good about finding the small, non-invasive way to get a, a better thing. So by taking each of those steps, each transition is actually pretty smooth. Like just going from jQuery to React isn't so crazy. Going from React to Elm isn't so crazy. And so any sort of 
changes you need to do or learning you need to do happens in a really gradual way. So I think a lot of people are going to be taking that route who are, who are getting into Elm. Of course, I'd prefer they just start with Elm. But. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but everybody's got an existing code base, right? You can't, you know, yeah. they can't all be Greenfield projects. One of the downsides of Elm is that it's kind of a smaller community, right? It's kind of like the weird interloper in JavaScript, even though it's it's inspiring a lot of people. There's nowhere near as many people using Elm as there are using React or just JavaScript in general. Right. Um, that was React when it came out. That's that's true, but I mean... <laughs> yeah, right, but we are there right now. That's totally true. How do you get around the problem that a lot of common problems have been solved for you in JavaScript and you have to solve them yourself in Elm? Because right now, that's I, I would say that's our team's biggest concern about Elm. Using it more widely in our in our apps is we'll just end up writing a lot of library code. Ports. Yeah, so Richard can say more in that in integrating Elm into various projects, there's a feature at Elm called ports, which lets you send messages out to JavaScript. JavaScript can do whatever you need it to do and send messages back. So essentially, you're able to communicate with some JavaScript piece of code, whatever that code happens to be, and it can do side effects and whatever crazy things you need, and it just send a, sends a message back into Elm. And so Richard's used that, I think, for everything you Yeah, needed. just since, since day one. I mean, yeah, so uh, that's another example of where things are a little bit less familiar, but they still totally work. So uh, the most recent feature I shipped at work was a really big, complicated... So I work at an uh, education company uh, called No Rank, and we have grammar and writing software for English teachers, and we're hiring, by the way. And... Uh, <laughs> And this particular form is a way for teachers to create uh, assignments. And there are all these different crazy parameters. They can make it a practice style. They can make it a quiz style, a pretest, post-test. Each of those has all sorts of different implications. There's a start date and a due date. There's a bunch of different topics they can filter through. And two of the particular features that we needed on this page that needed to interact with all this craziness are uh, one is a, a date picker. And we wanted specifically a date and time picker. So we didn't want to just delegate to the normal HTML5 stuff. Um, we really wanted like a third party and nobody wants to write a date picker themselves. That's, you know, come on. And the second thing that we wanted was full text indexing for the list of topics because we have hundreds of topics. So we had a little search bar on the page that let the end user search for it. Um, but that didn't go to the server. It was just like, well, they're already all there on the page in an accordion, you know, all several hundred of them, but Elm's fast at rendering. So that's fine. But uh, the question sort of was, how do we use this third-party date picker and this third-party full text indexing, specifically uh, lunar.js, like L-U-N-R.js is the one we use. And then we actually used a jQuery um, date time picker for the, uh, for the date picker. And basically, the way ports work is what Evan said. So you, uh, you get to a point in your Elm program where you're like, okay, cool. Now it's time to show the date picker. Like the user has clicked on this thing. We want to bring up the date picker. And what you do is you say, okay, I want to send this message to a port that says, hey, show the date picker. And then on the JavaScript side, you just write a little bit of sort of connective tissue, like a little bit of glue code. And all that code does is it literally calls, so you have your, your Elm app, uh, your Elm code that's, you've instantiated and is running. You, you know, you get that in a var. Then you say, so you have this var called app and app has a, a field called ports. So you say app.ports.subscribe and then, uh, or app.ports. you know, date picker.subscribe. You give it a callback function and just write whatever you want in that callback function. So you can invoke the date picker. You can, you know, do whatever you need. Yeah. So using that, it's sort of like, it feels like normal client server interaction where you're just like, 
you know, you have this sort of pub sub method where Elm is sending, you know, stuff to JavaScript. JavaScript can send stuff back to Elm. So like then the user clicks on the date in the date picker and then JavaScript sends back to a port in Elm. And yeah. yeah. So, it so, works. so Richard's been extremely good at sort of picking the right battles to fight. So like he's really good at, at saying, okay, this will, ports will work here. And for a majority of cases, ports is, is what you need. Um, I'm actually working on a way to do like, tighter integration to javascript stuff I, I don't know what the exact timeline is on that but if you want some sort of like really crazy kind of integration i think that's going to be in the pipeline but i generally feel that folks who sort of get started using elm so far haven't had showstopper issues because of integration stuff yeah i mean that's the thing is that like the worst case scenario is that uh you end up writing more javascript <laughs> like you 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 end up writing out to a port and you're like, I don't know how to do this in Elm or there's not a library for this in Elm yet. And you just say, okay, well, let's fire off into a port and just write some more JavaScript code. And then that's like no worse than your status quo, you know, <laughs> or CoffeeScript. I mean, I actually, when I say JavaScript, I generally mean CoffeeScript, but <laughs> I like CoffeeScript. Oh, how very uncool no. these days. I was going to say the haters are going to come out now. <laughs> that's fine. I, I also wrote a blog post on how ES6 is not a replacement for CoffeeScript, so bring it on. <laughs> you mentioned this new integration of JavaScript coming. Do you want to talk a little bit about other um, upcoming features in Elm? Sure. So I think we're kind of at a point where adding features isn't really a thing we, we want to do. <laughs> so the language itself is going to be pretty stable. We might be sort of removing some syntax that's not very commonly used. In terms of tooling around the language, we actually have a lot of cool stuff we want to do. So one example is our debugging stuff. We just had an intern working working with me this summer on Elm Reactor. So this is our like time traveling debugger. So you can sort of go back, take any program and sort of rewind it and replay what happened. So he's actually working on a well, he 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 was able to implement a, a thing that we're calling like export session so your QA person can find a bug and then just like export exactly what they did to you and you can you don't have to reproduce the bug you have the reproduction so not only that but then if, if you change your code in some cases it can actually replay it with your changed code yeah so you can, <laughs> you can you make can sure just, it's fixed yeah you, so you can easily test so so working on debugging stuff we have some ideas of how to our package manager already has some cool stuff in it but we have some ideas how to make it even nicer so right now it'll do automatic semantic versioning so if you release an api change we're able to detect oh that has to be a major release or if you just add a function we know okay that's minor that's fine or um and so we have some ideas of how to make improvements there but generally speaking i'd say the the sort of core concepts of the language are I don't see them changing very much. And most of the work will be sort of like, how do we make testing better? How do we make debugging better? So sort of the tooling around that. So that's an interesting segue. What's testing like? Richard can probably say. Yeah, so uh, the main things that I use are uh, Elm test and Elm check. Elm check being a library for Elm test. So there's basically one canonical testing framework. It's uh, It's definitely like more preliminary. Like it's not... I wouldn't say it's at this sort of same level of polish as um, a lot of the rest of the stuff in the language. So, it, but I mean, it, it works, you know, a lot like RSpec or like, uh, you know, Mocha in JavaScript, Jasmine, what have you. Uh, you basically have a suite of tests and they run. 
and then it uh, reports, <laughs> you know, whether they succeeded or failed. It doesn't, it runs on Node, so it's not designed for in-browser testing, because if you want to do in-browser testing, all the tools you already have, you know, work the same way. Uh, so if you want to, if you have like Karma or, you know, Selenium, anything like that, uh, there's no change. You just take your compiled Elm code and, you know, put it on the page and write your integration tests. But for unit testing, basically Elm check gives you, or sorry, Elm test gives you the same sort of framework that you would have, except that, you know, everything is stateless and uh, the compiler will also check your tests and make sure that they don't have any errors, which is nice. And, uh, and of course, then you can access the whole Elm package ecosystem uh, from within your tests. Um, so, so I would say like, the testing stuff is like adequate and it'll, it'll work well, but it doesn't, I, I haven't gotten a chance to give it the polish that I have for a lot of the other parts of Elm. Yeah, so Evan's like spotlight of awesome has not been trained on it yet. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think it'll be, we have some really cool ideas of how to make it like maybe the best testing thing that's out there. So I'm, I'm excited to, to work on, on these projects in the coming months. That's so funny. I'm really sorry it's only adequate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, it's it's totally fine. Like, we use it, you know, we, we got the tests running on Jenkins, you know, just, like, right alongside our other tests. Uh, Elm Check is pretty cool if, you, if you're into property-based testing or fuzz testing or probabilistic testing, and there's a bunch of different terms for it. But basically, it, you know, randomly generates a bunch of data and then gives it to your test and runs your test, like, 100 yeah. times. So it's a way of saying, like, yeah, but did you think of this? Yeah, and it'll it'll find the like the list that has a zero, and then uh, right. What happens if you give it zero? Yeah. What happens if you get neg- negative numbers? You know things yeah. like that. So it'll find the corner cases you didn't think of in the unit tests you wrote. So things are all right. So uh, I asked this in the chat, and uh, Jameson gave a whole bunch of answers. But I'm curious if you can tell us any websites that people have in production. I know that No Red Ink is out there, but you know other applications too that are built in Elm that you know, or out in the world in production. So I know uh, the company Circuit Hub, they use it for some of their diagrams. There's a German company that I forget the name of, but they're using it for some internal tools. There are about five companies total that are using it for two. I know that are using it for like user facing production stuff. And the others are sort of doing like one did their 404 page or, or doing internal tooling kind of stuff. And I have a suspicion that there's actually quite a few more companies out there that just like haven't told me about it. Every once in a while, <laughs> someone would be like, oh, I just pushed this production. I'm like, wait, who? What? What? Yeah. But yeah, so I'd say those are the, the bigger ones. Certainly Prezi's making a big investment because they pay this guy full time to do nothing but work on Elm. <laughs> and at Prezi, we're sort of, we're starting to get there. So one thing that I've also noticed is that the teams that have been the earliest adopters are smaller teams, so teams yeah. of like five. And what this typically means is you've got someone who sort of gets what the path will be to using Elm and is able to communicate that well to their whole team. And at Prezi, we have sort of bigger teams so that there's like, even if everyone on the team is like into it, there's sort of institutional things that make it hard to make that transition. Um, but we're starting to see this same path from some kind of JavaScript thing to React and TypeScript and then having those Elm influences and hopefully getting to writing Elm in the front end. So, so our website team is actually doing some changes and sort of re-architecting of stuff. And already we've sort of, they're using the Elm architecture to set that kind of stuff up. And I think the next project they do will be an Elm. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, the other question I had is um, you mentioned start app before and you kind of mm. 
put that out there as a good place to to get things rolling. Is that where you recommend that people get started with Elm? I would get started with the Elm architecture. So that one's written essentially as a series of eight examples of small apps. So it goes from a counter to a pair of counters to a random GIF getter uh, to a pair of those, to a list of those. Um, so it sort of walks you through from what's the literally most basic program you could write to let's do some HTTP stuff, let's do animation. And to sort of supplement that, it'd be good to check the docs. There's a guide to Elm, sort of the the complete guide. The first two chapters of that sort of get into what is the basic of syntax and then sort of gets into what are the key sort of ways of thinking in a functional way. And both of those are really key foundational things that will help you out a lot. But uh, I, I think you can start with the Elm architecture and go pretty far. So I guess the other question related to what I asked previously was, is there some kind of canonical app that people tend to build with Elm? Uh, you know, sort of like people use chat apps or other apps to build Node and and things like that. I'm not, I'm not sure. Do you know? Yeah, I, would, I don't know if there's a canonical one, though. No. Um, there probably should be, though. <laughs> I had a friend make Snake, like the game. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For <laughs> a while, yeah. That. <laughs> so earlier in the history of Elm, games became easier, but easy before web apps became easy. So like something like Snake would have been the canonical one. I guess something like to do MVC is more the, the typical one. So I'm working on a blog post that eh, might be out by the time this airs, actually. Uh, so maybe I should use the past tense there, but basically about um, like a live validated signup form that, you know, goes and checks all your form inputs and then uh, goes and checks to see if your email address is taken, things like that, or your username is taken, you know, with Ajax. Because that's like something I built a lot. And, you know, I, I know that it definitely, it's not like the, the coolest thing in the world, but it's definitely, uh, practical because I, you know, I've built that a million times before <laughs> and yeah. it's always different in every different, you know, library framework, what have you combination I've used. Yeah. And, and I think it's also strict, like, I guess when you're doing sort of general front end HTML kind of interactive apps, I don't know if there's like a standby canonical one, right? Like it might, I feel like it seems to, it seems to vary over the years. Like, I mean, yeah. Twitter, yeah, Twitter is, you know, was, was a thing for a while. It's, I've seen it. Yeah. Different things at different times. Yeah. So hopefully that answers the question. Uh, I mean, the answer is that right now there is not a canonical <laughs> yeah, yeah. one. Yeah. Um, Short but version. Maybe there will be one after <laughs> I write this blog post. <laughs> well, what at least about, people have some ideas. Yeah. What about community? Where do you find the heart of the Elm community and find other people to talk with about Elm and get answers answered, questions answered? So I'd say right now the the core is on the Elm Discuss mailing list, and there's a really nice meetup we do in San Francisco uh, for people who are around. And I think those are sort of the key ways that we sort of talk about ideas and, and help people out. I'd like to get Reddit more lively or try to sort of migrate some of Elm Discuss to Reddit. We'll, we'll see how, how that goes. But but I'd say that's sort of the core ways of getting in, in touch with people. And the list is super nice. It's it, People are happy to help. There are folks like Hassan, who's just like, super smart, makes great packages and is, is extraordinarily helpful. Like I, I, you know, I can't thank him enough for how helpful he is on the mailing list. I am blown away by, by the level of detail I've seen in responses where someone will post a newbie question and then the response will be like five times as long with like code samples and like, here are different ways you could do this. You know, here's like, let me try and help you understand, you know, why you're stuck on this. I mean, it's yeah. Mm -hmm. Hassan, Jeff, like, you know, Max, there's just a ton of, Awesome people. 
are you seeing much on Stack Overflow yet? So this is something that we're sort of, I'm not sure when the right time to start putting stuff on Stack Overflow will be. I guess you can mark questions as like, yeah, old. yeah, you already can. Yeah. Oh, but we have this concern that like, if we had started using Stack Overflow a year ago, essentially all the questions would be trash because it'd be right. like, Hey, how do you solve this problem? And then like, there was a release of the language that sort of like solved that in a coherent, nice way. Um, and so we have this tension of, at what point do we want to start like making this the top Google search? And w- will that be good or bad long term? So I know people do ask questions there now these days. Oh, yeah. One of the other cool things that, that just came out, speaking of tooling and uh, you yeah. know new resources, uh, the Sublime Text plugin just got a major overhaul thanks to Texas Tolan. And I've got it running on my laptop right now. It's really awesome. Like If I just make a mistake and I, I just press the build button... Um, not only does it, you know, pop up the error message and, and display it like right in line, but it actually even highlights inside my code where the error was. So I don't have to go, you know, find the line number and things like that. It's just like, here you go. This is, uh, this is your problem right here. It's pretty cool. When was that? Uh, I think that actually just came out like Monday, Monday, yeah. Monday the 17th, hmm. August 17th, yeah. 2015. So, so very recently, the last compiler at least sort of laid the groundwork for these kinds of tools and, they're coming out and it's it's awesome. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah, it also tells you about unused imports. So like if you use, uh, so like, you know, ESX has a module system lets you import stuff. Um, Elm has a similar thing. But now, you know, right in Sublime, when I hit build, it says, hey, uh, by the way, you're not using this import anywhere. And I say, oh, cool. I can definitely delete that line of code. We're definitely the type of shop at work where like we celebrate when we make pull requests that are more deletions than additions. So it's nice to be able to have something that helps me uh, find ways to delete code. <laughs> right, right. Just out of curiosity, Elm isn't JavaScript, but I'm just curious if WebStorm has talked at all about putting in support for Elm. Uh, not as far as I know. I think this is mainly you know community-driven tooling right now. I think that the closest we've come to that, I, I know that Texas talked to Panic Makes It. Uh, it's JetBrains. No, no. Um, Coda, maybe? Is that true? I, I, it's, it's an ID or a, an editor that I don't use. Uh, <laughs> but he talked about, like, I use Sublime Text. But he was talking to them about doing integration. Yeah, he's Coda. also, okay, yeah. Uh, he's also started working on improving the Atom integration. Uh, I know that uh, there are other people who have done crazy things with the Vim integration that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that are really impressive. But yeah, I mean, it's it's all very community driven right now. I don't think, honestly, that you know Elm is big enough to attract the attention of a big you know enterprise IDE yet. Yeah, you, you know. know you're big when JetBrains writes an editor for you. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that's when you um, made it. <laughs> but I mean, I, that's understandable from their perspective. It's there's not enough of a market. It's a you know it's an emerging technology. It's not an established one yet. And it's been cool to sort of see these community projects sort of pop up and see people keep doing things that I just didn't know were possible. Right. Like the time travel debugging is an example of this. We're just like, I didn't realize that was a thing we could do until someone sort of just was like, Hey, check this out. And I was like, Holy crap. <laughs> um, I think there's a, when like building a healthy community, it's actually quite cool to start seeing these projects come up and people sort of getting to make really awesome stuff and like own that in a real way. So I'm, I'm really happy with how far our tooling has come just with the community stuff. Right. I noticed that there was like a, a webpack loader for it. So we're seeing a lot of stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I so I I wrote uh, um, Grunt Elm like a Grunt integration. Somebody else wrote a Gulp integration. I and I wrote the Webpack loader um, basically because I wanted to try out Webpack. Uh, mm-hmm. But I that one's not nearly as uh, you know robust as the the Grunt one. I think is probably the most robust because I used it a lot for Dreamwriter. We also at work, so we've got a Sprockets integration. Uh, we have not gotten all the way through to making that a gem yet, but there is like a little gist that if anyone wants that, um, RT Feldman on Twitter and just. Ping me and I'll send you the gist. <laughs> but what's interesting is like I think we're we're definitely seeing more sort of companies and people checking out Elm, and so we're at this really cool time when you can make a super important project for like this community in the next two or five or ten years because like it, it, it's right that time. And so I think you know we'll look back in a couple of months and be like, oh yeah, remember when like we didn't have. Right. Like that in our editors. Remember we didn't have Elm test? I mean, yeah. Cool. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I ended up actually working with the guy who wrote Node Inspector. Hmm. And it was funny because way back then, Node, when he wrote it, Node was nothing. And uh, he wasn't even developing a Node full time, but he just went and wrote <laughs> Node Inspector. And <laughs> it was pretty funny. You know, a year later, he's he was still not doing Node full time. And people were like, you wrote Node Inspector? Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, almost at that point right now, it's uh, yeah, it, it's sort of, and it and it feels like we're starting to get those kinds of contributions where it's like, oh man, that's like, yeah, <laughs> like people optimizing their workflow, like it, it's it's really cool. It's 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 a it's a very cool time in Elm world. Awesome. Yep. All right, anything else before we get to the picks? Oh, I have a fifty-five million questions, but <laughs> <laughs> we we'll have to have us back. Yeah, yeah. We, we might have to. <laughs> this has been fun. Yep. It'd definitely come back. Yeah, if we have enough more questions, definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, before we get to the picks, we'll uh, give a quick shout out to our silver sponsors. This episode is sponsored by TrackJS. Let's face it, errors cost you money. You lose customers, server resources, and time to them. Wouldn't it be nice if someone told you how and when they happened so you could fix them before they cost you big time? You may have this on your backend application code, but what about your front end JavaScript? It's time to check out TrackJS. It tracks errors and usage and helps you find bugs before your customers even report them. Go check them out at trackjs.com slash jsjabber. This episode is sponsored by CodeSchool. CodeSchool is an online learning destination for existing and aspiring developers that teach us through entertaining content. They provide immersive video lessons with in-browser challenges, which means that each course has a unique theme and storyline and feels much more like a game. Whether you've been programming for a long time or have only just begun, CodeSchool has something for everyone. You can master Ruby on Rails or JavaScript, as well as Git, HTML, CSS, and iOS. And more than a million people around the world use CodeSchool to improve their development skills by learning or doing. You can sign up at codeschool.com slash javascriptjabber. All right. Amy, do you have some picks for us? Yes. So my first pick, I started to look into Elm a little bit this week, and two, or I guess this is actually just one of the resources that I found really helpful, was by Pragmatic Studio. So I will put a link into that. I'm just like a very, very, very brief tutorial. Of course, the documentation on the Elm website was also really good. But this was also something else that I found to be a really good little like five, ten minute starter article on it. And yeah, I actually worked with the guy who runs that. And he did, a, did like a, what's it called? Video cast? Screencast? Yeah, yeah. yeah that also, that also yeah. worked really, really helpful. So I, so- I, like he and I worked through some of the content to make sure it was like a really nice intro course. So that that stuff is really good. 
Yeah, I just I can't stress enough, I guess, for any other newerish people out there, like how approachable this seemed. And it seemed like really, really beneficial thing to start looking at. So, you know, if you all you've done is just plain old JavaScript uh, so far, I think it'll be really helpful to start looking into some of this. Awesome. That, that's it for me. All right, Joe, you have some picks? I would like to pick Elm. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's fair game, right? Yep. I think it's super cool. I've been messing around with it for a while now. I think it's awesome. And I'm very interested in this correlation between Elm and the frameworks that we're seeing and things we're seeing happen nowadays in JavaScript. And uh, even though I have picked it, feel free, anybody else who wants to, to pick Elm. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, for my second pick, I'm going to pick a board game I've been playing with my kids called Student Bodies which is a zombie survival board game, but unlike other zombie survival board games where you work together, in this one you are trying to be the only survivor. And when you get out the door, then you lock it behind you, and so tripping your opponents while you're running around and pushing them into the zombies is all fair game. So that's my uh, second pick. And uh, I will uh, second Amy Knight's pick, the, the pragmatic... They have some really cool stuff in their video uh, tutorials, actually really good. And who knows, maybe sometime in the future we'll see a video tutorial on Pluralsight. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, I've got a couple of picks. The first one is Angular Remote Conf. I believe I've mentioned it on here before, but I am working on pulling together a remote conference for Angular developers. It's going to be September 24th, 25th, and 26th from 12 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, I know that makes it kind of hard for people in the South Pacific, Australia, etc. But uh, I have to pick some part of the world that it's just not going to be convenient for. And so this time, yeah, I opted to have it in the evening for the people in Europe. And uh, we also have an, an Angular podcast on this network, Adventures in Angular, and you can get that at adventuresinangular.com. Joe is actually on that show along with John Papa and Lucas Rubelke and Ward Bell and John's daughter Katya. So uh, we have a good time talking about Angular over there. That's Joe's daughter Katya, not John's. Oh, did I say John? You did. Yeah. (laughs) She's related to Joe, not John. (laughs) And then in the course of uh, building the thing, I've really liked working with Stripe. So I'm going to pick Stripe. Their API is really awesome. And then I've been listening to a book on, or a series of books on Audible by Brandon Sanderson. The first one is Alcatraz and the Evil Librarians. It is hilarious. Really enjoyed it. Uh, I've just decided to give in and read all the rest of Brandon's books. So those are my picks. Evan, what are your picks? I'm on a reading kick. I'm trying to like decrease my time spent on the internet. So my two are going to be books. The first one is Understanding Comics. And I wasn't much of like a comics person, but this book just sort of like revealed that whole world to me in a really cool way with lessons about how to communicate in a presentation or in person. It was just like extremely insightful, really cool book. And the second one is The Glass Bead Game by Herman Hesse. I just love that book. It's a really, a really nice German buildings Roman book that I I thought was really interesting. All right, Richard, what are your picks? Uh, I've got three. Uh, the first one is The Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman. Um, this just totally changed the way I thought about usability from all sorts of things. Just, I mean, like the first chapter is 
like the usability of doors and like how, you know, yeah, like the, awesome. the user experience about using doors. It, it just gets wilder from there. Yeah. Um, like the configuration of the dials on an oven. I'm like, Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really, really changed the way I looked at the world and made me a much better design, you know, made me much better at designing user interfaces. Pick number two is Simple Made Easy, which is a talk by Rich Hickey, which just fundamentally changed the way I thought about programming. He basically draws a distinction between the words simple and easy and talks about how easy things are sort of those that are near at hand and are sort of familiar and comfortable and easier to pick up. Simple things are more about sort of the opposite of complex. And how in programming, we often reach for the easy thing to our detriment when really what we should be looking for is the simple thing. The simple thing is going to be, you know, more maintainable and give us a better time in the long run. And after sort of following that, that's sort of probably the thing that started me off on the road to functional programming that eventually led to my picking up Elm. So it seemed appropriate for this podcast. And the third pick is our company blog, which has been getting more and more hits and more and more awesome. Uh, it's just no red ink tech tumblr.com and uh, we basically write about all sorts of programming stuff elm javascript you know uh, ruby and general design stuff uh, there's a lot of stuff on there so check it out all right well thanks for coming gentlemen yeah thanks for having us that was fun and thanks to our panel too that was a that was a great discussion and hopefully we inspire some people to go check out elm hosting and bandwidth provided by the blue box group check them out at bluebox.net Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at JavaScriptJabber.com slash Jabber. And there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. <laughs>